us pray together. Risen Lord, we sense your presence among us, moving in our hearts and our minds, teaching us to embrace more of your truth. Keep nudging us. We welcome your work in our hearts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today we come to that part of the creation story where Adam and Eve recognize that they are naked and they hide from God. Now this is a vivid story that appears in almost every children's Bible storybook. So we might be tempted to think that it's a cutesy story not meant for serious-minded adults, but not so fast. Some of us will take this story as history. Others here will take this story as sacred parable. But whichever way you take it, there's a message here that I think is profound. Because the story is really about you and me. And it's really about our struggle with human brokenness. This latter part of the creation story wants to teach us something painful about ourselves. John, I didn't come to church this morning to hear about something painful. <laughs> I understand that. But remember what Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Friends, I think if we can get our minds and our hearts around today's passage and what it's trying to teach us, that our lives will be much better. And you will be so much freer in your living. So what do you say? You want this truth or not? <laughs> Genesis 2.9, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 16, the Lord God said to Adam and Eve, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what does this mean? What does this tree represent? For you and me. I think on a deep level, it represents our idolatrous willingness to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. A prerogative God wished to maintain. God did not intend humanity to have an experiential understanding of evil, I take from this text, because of how it would affect us and what it would do in our relationship with God. Therefore, in one sense, and I think maybe from a more positive perspective, the tree represents healthy boundaries. God has placed us on this earth and given us the gift of life to enjoy it freely. But living into that fullness requires a fair amount of self-discipline because Let's be frank, there's a whole lot of things in this world that look good to the eye and feel good in the moment, but bite like a snake. And so God has given us healthy boundaries, certain rules, not as a type of loyalty test, but in the spirit of telling us how we can do that which is good for ourselves. Because, you see, in the theology of the authors of the New Testament, rules are our friends. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Sabbath rule. 
And we saw that Jesus did keep the Sabbath rule, but he didn't keep it legalistically. He kept it flexibly and taught his disciples to do the same. Once when the disciples were accused of being too flexible in their keeping of the Sabbath rule, Jesus defended them with these words in Mark 2, 27. The Sabbath rules were made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath rule. Do you perceive the significance of that? Jesus is saying to us, you were not created to serve rules. Rules were created to serve you, to help you, to benefit you. He's teaching us the spirit in which we, as his followers, keep rules. In ways that benefit ourselves and benefit others. And never, we never apply the rules in ways that are harmful to others. Healthy, strong, flexible boundaries. The Apostle Paul, later in the New Testament, makes exactly the same point in 1 Corinthians 6.12, where he says, all things are lawful for me. Now, let the magnitude of that statement sink into your mind. All things are lawful for me. Paul is claiming as a follower of Jesus, technically, I can do whatever I want. But... Not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. As followers of Jesus, we are not slaves to rules, but we recognize that there are many things in the world that we could do that would not be beneficial for us. Some of them even destructive to us. So not out of compulsion, but out of, I would perhaps say, enlightened self-interest, loving self-interest. I strive to live with healthy boundaries in my life, lest I become a dead man walking. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, as a wise person once said, being lost is living by a set of values that systematically dismantles your life. As we look through scripture, we see all kinds of healthy boundaries that are meant to help us live our lives, not to trap us and not to snare us, but to benefit us to live healthy lives. For example, Scripture gives us a few models of healthy boundaries around the topic of divorce. As I understand these, and even in the Gospels, the instructions about how to handle divorce are, are varied and different, but as I understand them in general, we're taught that divorce is permissible, as a last resort, the biblical rules about divorce teach us that God views divorce as a safety valve, but only after we make a, a heroic effort to save our marriage. Because God knows that every long-term relationship is going to encounter times of severe testing, and God knew that our natural instinct would be to get out of that, try to get out of that pain as soon as possible. So the easiest thing to do is just to, to let it go, to get out of there. And so Jesus gives us some strong but flexible boundaries where divorce is a safety valve that is used only if absolutely necessary after we've done the hard work of facing our own stuff, facing the issues in our relationship with the other person. These rules are given to us as a blessing for us, for our benefit. And so we strive to keep healthy boundaries. 
But then, almost inevitably, there is a snake that crawls up behind us in the grass. Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of the forbidden tree that your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does the serpent represent in this story? Temptation. Despite our best efforts, the temptation to trade long-term benefit for short-term benefit will constantly crawl up behind us in the grass. That's how temptation works in our life. And you know what? It's everywhere. You can be driving home at the end of the day and the thought suddenly pops into your mind, into your brain. It would be so fun to sing a Barry Manilow song right now. You know, the musical equivalent of junk food. I love very Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I knew, I know I'm preaching to a broken congregation. <laughs> but then you say, no, no, that wouldn't be good for me. The tune would get stuck in my head for days. But then that snake crawls up behind you. Just a few lines won't hurt. Go ahead, try it. You think you're, to yourself, okay, I'll just try it. Oh, Mandy, <laughs> when you came and you gave without thinking, no, no, it's not good for me, but then it's too late. You've fallen from grace. You've degraded yourself. That's how temptation works, and I've used a silly example here. But you understand that temptation is a serious thing, and it affects us in serious ways in our lives. We want gratification, and we want it now. And the snake crawls up and says, just buy one more thing for your house on that maxed out credit card. Then you'll be happy. That snake crawls up and says, go ahead, express your unchecked anger to your friend. You deserve to do that. Yeah, you're going to destroy a lifelong relationship, but it feels so good to do it in the moment. Don't let God hem you in. You're entitled to what you want and to do what you want. So we end up breaking through those healthy barriers in our lives. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the story of humanity was changed forever. You know, after this, I imagine they probably had this gut reaction. Why did we just do this? I mean, think about it. Have you ever experienced that in times in your life when you've done something really stupid or really wrong? And you think, if, if I could have, if I could just turn back time right now. But I can't. And now I am stuck with this for the rest of my life and nothing else will ever be the same. You know, after his death in August last year, we heard a lot of stories about the life of John McCain, the hero who did courageous things. What struck me most last year was a detailed story that was told after his death of one of the lowest points in his life. It was March 2000. 
He was running against George W. Bush for presidential candidate, and Bush seemed to be taking the lead in all of the polls. McCain, at that time, if you remember, he was sort of this insurgent candidate. He rolled into New Hampshire in February. He was riding this bus called the Straight Talk Express. He presented himself by doing so as a, you know, a different kind of politician, a different kind of political leader, a, a leader who will tell you exactly what he thinks, even if it's not what you want to hear. He presented himself as not like those other sleazy politicians who will say anything or do anything to get elected. And you know, that message really caught on in New Hampshire. And he trounced Bush in New Hampshire. Now, if he could just do the same in South Carolina in their primary in March of 2000 and win that, he would be well on his way for the nomination for president. But when he rolled into South Carolina, there was a debate going on in that state as to whether they should take down the Confederate war flag from the top of the state house. And McCain had strong views on that. He felt it was profoundly wrong. But he also knew that if he gave an honest answer, that he would lose thousands of votes and probably lose the primary. It was one of his greatest moments of testing. When he was asked the question, though, he avoided it. He said, I think that's an issue for the states to decide. I have no opinion. He lost the primary anyway, but he also lost his integrity. He lost his authenticity. So much so that a month later in April 2000, he stood in front of a camera in the well of the Senate and he made his confession. And as I, last year as I watched that replayed on TV, I found it profoundly moving because I've never seen a politician do anything like what he did right there. He looked into the, into the camera and the gist of what he says was, was I owe the America, American people and especially the people of South Carolina, an apology. I said I would always tell you the truth, even if it wasn't popular. But in South Carolina, I did not tell you the truth for selfish interests. I believe that the Confederate flag flying in publicly in that way is profoundly wrong. And I knew that if I said that, I couldn't get elected. And now I have to live with that omission the rest of my life. For that, I am deeply sorry. This was John McCain coming face to face with his own brokenness. So often we want to think of ourselves as better than others. We're a cut above the rest, aren't we? But in a moment of vulnerability, we can become the very things that we hate. We are all in our own unique ways, broken people. Every single one of us will come to those places in life where we bump into uncomfortable and painful truths about who we really are. The very things that we look at other people and we say, I would never do that. What are they thinking? I'm better than that. We come to those vulnerable moments in life where we have to come face to face with the truth that just like everyone else, I am broken. We are all broken. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I ask you, what do you do when you come face to face with your brokenness? 
Often when we come face to face with our brokenness, we are naturally inclined to do exactly what Adam and Eve did. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. Their souls were laid bare and they didn't like what they saw. They sewed fig leaves together in a pathetic effort to make loincloths for themselves. Then they heard the sound of God walking through the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves among the trees of the garden. They were afraid. They did not want to be exposed. They hid from God. And friends, that is what I've seen all my life in pastoral work. People hiding from God. And one of the best measures of whether or not that is happening in a person's life is whether or not they have an active life of prayer. If we only pray on Sunday or meals, but make no time for a deeper experience of God in prayer, that almost always is an indication that there's something estranging us from God, something that we don't want to face, something that we're hiding from God. It's similar to when married, a married couple comes into my office and one of them says, she just won't talk to me anymore. Or he just won't say anything to me anymore. I know right away that one or both of them has decided not to face something deeply important. Because when communication breaks down like that, there's not much left in a relationship. And it's the same in our prayer lives, prayer, communication with God. It's the evidence that we've been reconciled to God, the restoration of communication. Just as communication is the evidence that we have been reconciled to each other. Not praying is one way I've noticed that we try to hide from God. There are others, several others, not coming to church. Adam and Eve hid behind the trees behind makeshift clothing. But notice how God responds in verse 9. The Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? Come out, I'm worried. They had disobeyed the one thing God told them not to do for their own good. It's the very thing they did. It could have been so easy for God to abandon them in that moment, saying, Okay, you humans want to do your own thing? Fine, I'm done with you. Or God could have destroyed them in a single breath of anger, turning them back into dust. But instead of abandoning them or destroying them, God goes searching for them. God calls out. God, I hear, I hear anxiety in God in this story. God can't wait to find what God, God has lost. God does not destroy or abandon them. God seeks them out, and when God finds them, this is the interesting part of the story, God then makes provision for them. God uses skins to make clothing for them, suitable clothes. And then God goes off to move them out of Eden, far away from there, to a new place where they can make a new beginning. That's grace. When we, like Adam and Eve, fall, and then when we try to hide from God, God goes looking out after us, calling to us until God finds us. And then God helps us to get back up and to move forward again. That is what grace is. You know, my point here is, that there's no, is not that there's no consequences for bad choices that we make. 
God does not impinge on our freedom by erasing everything we decide to do. We have all done things that we regret, and we all have to live with the consequences of those choices. Just like they did. Adam now had to work by the sweat of his brow. The earth no longer easily produced for him. Eve now experiences great pain, and this serpent loses its legs, and all of them had to leave the garden. But here's the thing. God went with them. God took them out of that place to a new place, east of Eden, where they could make a new beginning on the other side of their brokenness. What is true of them in this story is true of us as well. Paul says in Romans, where sin abound, grace abounds all the more. This is the promise of God to us. We come face to face with our brokenness and God scoops us back up again by God's grace and gives us another chance, another opportunity to move beyond our brokenness. We fall down and we get up. And when we finally reach the place where we stop pretending to be something that we're not, when we finally stop lying to ourselves or summon the courage to actually look at who we are and stop lying to others and to God about our fatal flaws, and when we confess our brokenness, it sets us free. Because now, instead of investing all of our energy in pretending to, to be something we're not, we can now redirect that energy into getting back up again and knowing that, yes, sin has the power to break me, but grace always has the power to put me back together. I think that's the message of the second half of the creation story. And I'm wondering, have you embraced those two truths in your life, those two sides of reality Painful self-awareness coupled with astonishing grace from God. That's what sets us free to fully live life. I today am looking at a congregation of broken people. Some people spend their entire lives running and hiding from that truth. And in the process only make their lives worse. But others boldly face the truth about themselves, look to the grace of God, own and confront their brokenness, and find there in the grace of God everything they need to stand back up, to serve themselves as instruments of God's grace despite their brokenness. Which life will you choose? Come clean. Confess your brokenness to God. It will set you free to experience the astonishing grace of God in your life again and again. Thanks be to God. Amen.